This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 6. If you're new today, we are walking through the gospel of Mark together And we're going to be looking at chapter 6 today in verses 30 and following. Verses 30 through 44 is where we'll be today. We're talking about God's provision for our every need. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to begin with verse 30. If you would follow along with me in God's word As we look at the scripture together, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this remarkable display of your provision, that you are more than enough, as we sang earlier, for every thirst, for every need. And so we pray today that you would give us a vision of your abundance, of the supernatural way that you provide for your people. We pray that you would make us men and women of faith, understanding that your supply of abundance can never be exhausted. Speak to our hearts now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Author Frederick Beekner is very penetrating in his description of the devouring effects of sin. Beekner says this about the sin of lust. He says, lust is the craving for salt of a man who is dying of thirst. He says this about the sin of anger. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you were given and the pain you were giving back. In many ways, it's a feast fit for a king. 
The chief drawback is that you are wolfing down yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Well, last week, we saw earlier in chapter 6 that there is a king's feast that takes place in Galilee. King Herod throws a feast for his cronies and, and John the Baptist's head ends up on a platter. That was a feast of hatred and death. Well, today we're going to see another feast. And this feast is given by the true king. And instead of being a feast of hatred and death, this is going to be a feast of love and life. What do we see in this scripture? I want to share three principles with you. And the first one is the principle of replenishment, which we see in verses 30 through 32. Let's look at them together. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So last week we also saw that Jesus sent out the twelve on a mission. And they were to go into the various towns and villages and doing ministry. And now they've returned. And Jesus is sensitive enough to know that the biggest need that they have right now is for rest and replenishment. They needed to talk about what they had experienced on this trip, they needed to, to debrief and, and process and rest and, and replenish. And when you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus practices this principle of replenishment again and again, frequently in the Gospels. You'll, you'll see that Jesus is going away by himself, withdrawing to a desolate place to pray, to be alone with the Father. Now, friends... <laughs> If, if Jesus felt that that was vital for, for him to do, how arrogant are we to think that we can just keep going 100 miles an hour all the time and not take time to slow down and be with God and replenish? You know, I'll never forget the, the first time that I learned how to ride a bike. My dad said, let's take the training wheels off today, son. So we took off the training wheels and... I got going, and, and he was running beside me, and I was doing it with no problem. In fact, I was going, it was such, such not a problem that I just, uh, I, I left him behind, and I was just pedaling uh, away. But in my exuberance of learning how to, how to pedal and go, I had sort of a, a brain cramp and sort of panicked and forgot how to slow down. And eventually, it was my neighbor's ditch that slowed me down. In a hurry. Okay, well listen, if we forget to slow down, we're headed for a crash landing, spiritually. You know, being a disciple is not just a matter of being on mission for Jesus, it's a matter of being on a mission with Jesus. We do life and we do ministry, we have to, out of a relationship with Christ that requires cultivation and nurturing, and, and, and taking the time just to, just to be before the face of God. There's, a, there's an old Jewish story that I love about a little four-year-old boy named Mordecai. And Mordecai's 
parents wanted him to learn Hebrew, and so they'd taken him to Hebrew school, and, and, and this little boy was rebellious, and, and he didn't want to sit still, and he didn't want to listen to his teachers, and so they were just at wit's end. And so the, the parents one day took him to their rabbi, who was a very kind and a very wise man. And so this rabbi heard these parents pour out their frustration about little Mordecai. And he listened to them, and then without a word, he just picked this little boy up in his arms very gently. And he just held him up to his chest, very snugly. And, and Mordecai could, could hear and, and, and feel the beating of the rabbi's heart. And then without a word, the rabbi just gently put him back down. They didn't have any more trouble with Mordecai. What do we most need in the Christian life to replenish? We need to hear God's heart. How do we hear God's heart? We hear God's heart by slowing down and by getting with Him and replenishing. So we see here, first of all, the principle of replenishment. Second, we see the principle of compassion. Look at verses 33 and 34. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Sometimes our plans get interrupted. <laughs> Jesus has a, their, their plans are, for, are to withdraw, to get alone, to go to a desolate place. But what happens? This great crowd, which scholars estimate would have been probably between fifteen and 20,000 people, the 5,000 men, okay, but probably the whole crowd, fifteen or 20,000, the crowd has heard where Jesus is headed, and so they get there ahead of them. And so instead of finding a place to retreat, they're greeted by this massive crowd. But, you know, we see here the flexibility of Jesus, because in, instead of regarding this as an interruption, he regards it as a divine appointment. And, and many times it's like that in our lives, that the very things that seem like interruptions to us can actually, they're actually opportunities for, for God to do something surprising, something unexpected, something extraordinary. And Jesus regards it that way. And so Jesus looks at this crowd. And instead of feeling anger or resentment, what does Jesus feel? He feels compassion for them. You know, I'm noticing a lot of things in America today in, in the Christian community. I'm noticing a lot of Christians are fearful. They're fearful of the lost. They're fearful of the values of, of lost people. We look at this culture and where it's headed and so forth, and we can, we can find ourselves filled with fear of the lost. Sometimes we, we can look and, at, uh, at our culture and, and we can actually feel ourselves uh, with a feeling of resentment towards the lost, or even anger towards the lost. What I'm not noticing a whole lot in the Christian community in America these days is the very thing that it takes to win the lost. And that's compassion for the lost. That's what Jesus has. Jesus doesn't look at the lost with fear or anger or resentment. He looks at them with compassion. 
again and again in the Gospels, and we've seen this in the Gospel of Mark, that the tax collectors and sinners, the, the irreligious people, the outcasts, how do they regard Jesus? They're attracted to Him. And they're not attracted to Him because he, 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 he waters down the message or doesn't call them to repent. He does. But in the midst of all of that, they, they, they can sense that this is somebody who really loves them. How much do lost people in our world think that we as Christians love them? Sometimes they think we don't love them. Sometimes they think we don't even like them. And sometimes with our rhetoric, we give them reason to think that. It should never be. It should never be. They should know that, that we care for them. That we have compassion for them. It's what Jesus has for the lost. It's what he had for us. That's why we're believers today. You know, one of my favorite um, films is Slumdog Millionaire, which won eight Academy Awards. And the film is set in India against the backdrop of poverty and things like sex trafficking and uh, human slavery and a lot of dark things. But against that dark backdrop, there's this beautiful, beautiful love story that takes place. The story is about Jamal and Latika. Jamal and Latika are, are orphans. They meet as, as little kids in a slum of Mumbai. And from a very early age, Jamal, uh, this little boy, just has a, a love in his heart for Latika while they're still children. And throughout the film, they, they grow to be young adults. Latika is, is kidnapped as part of a human trafficking operation. And, uh, but Jamal never forgets her. He never stops loving her. He never stops looking for her. At one point in the film, it looks like they're, it looks like they're going to be reunited, but, but, but Latika is brutally uh, just grabbed again by her, her captors, and her, her beautiful face is slashed with a knife. And then at the end of the film, against all odds, the two come together. And Latika is wearing a long scarf that covers her scar. And Jamal removes the scarf and, and the scar is on her cheek is exposed. And she looks down in shame. And he, he takes his hand and lifts, lifts her countenance. And he kisses her scar. You know, Jesus doesn't look at our sin and our scars and turn away in disgust. Jesus is going to do what? What are we going to see in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus is going to take our sin and our scars and He's going to make them His own in Jerusalem, isn't He? Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and He is going to be slashed. He is going to be disfigured. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be nailed to a cross. For us. And by his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. Now, how can we, who have been on the receiving end of so much compassion from Jesus, how can we look at the nail scarred hands of Jesus and have a lack of compassion for those who are lost? There's a principle here of compassion that we see. Third, a principle of provision. Verses 35 and 36. When it grew late, 
His disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages to buy themselves something to eat. Now, this is just a typical, natural, human way to look at a problem. Isn't this what we so often do? We have a challenge in front of us, and, and, and what do we do? We just immediately start figuring out human solutions to deal with it. We don't pray about it. We don't even think about We don't factor God into the equation at all. What's missing here? They're not even thinking about the fact that they are in the presence of the one who works miracles. They just look at it on a sort of a flat human plane. Hey, send them out to buy food. That's all we can do. If we call ourselves disciples, it means that instead of just looking at things by sight, that we look at things from the perspective of faith. And it means that rather than immediately go for the human solution, the first thing we should do is pray. You know, in his book, Forgotten God, Francis Chan tells a story about a couple named Dave and Lynn Phillips. And they were very involved in in missions, especially to children in developing uh, countries. And so one day, uh, Dave got a a call from a a man in in Honduras who directed a, a cancer treatment center. And the man said, I've got seven kids who are going to die of cancer unless they get a certain drug. Do you know any way that we can get it? Dave had no clue. <laughs> but he said, let's, let's just pray about it. What, you know? And so the two men prayed over the phone. And before he, he, could even, he could even put his phone back in his pocket, Dave saw, after, after they prayed, Dave, Dave saw that he had another call coming in. The call that was coming in was from a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey. And they were, they said, they were asking Dave Phillips, they were wondering if he would have any use for 48,000 vials of this drug. And it was the exact drug they'd just been talking about. Listen, we have a God who is more than able and more than willing to provide supernaturally. But as we saw last week, he does that when we exercise faith in him. If we don't step out in faith, we should not expect the supernatural intervention of God. Jesus could could do no miracles in Nazareth. Why? Because of their unbelief. If we're going to see God work like this, we have to step out and we have to trust Him and look to Him. That's what they're not doing in this situation. They're just looking at it in a human way, not factoring God in. So Jesus says to them in verse 37... You give them something to eat. And in Greek, the pronoun is there. You is there, and it's emphatic. You give them something to eat. They're like, you talking to us? Yeah, I'm talking to you. You give them something to eat. (laughs) They say to him in verse 37, Shall we go out and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? Again, they simply aren't factoring the, 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 the intervention of God into their thinking. Verse 38, and he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. See, they were focused on what they lacked. Jesus is trying to get them to focus on what Almighty God can do with what they possess. What do do you have? Graduates, everyone, what do you have? What do you have? You have this life. You have a certain amount of 
of education, which we recognized early in the service. You know, you have some resources, you have some spiritual gifts, you have some experiences. These are things that you have that God has given. We're so tempted to focus on what we lack. God's question is, what could I do with what you have? God has given you these things. Have you offered them to him for his glory? What has God given you? What do you have? Okay, offer it to the Lord. Verse 39. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, we can see Peter's eyewitness testimony coming through here in Mark once again, can't we? He remembers what the grass looked like that day. That's the testimony of an eyewitness, someone who was there. And so we know this had to be spring in Galilee. It wouldn't have been during the winter. It wouldn't have been during the summer. The grass would not have been green. This would have been Galilee in springtime. It's just one of those beautiful places on earth. And so we know that it took place then. But, but, but by adding this detail about green, uh, green grass, there's something else that's happening too. Because in the Old Testament... Green pastures are a symbol of God's abundance, God's provision. We know this from the 23rd Psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. It's about His abundance. It's about the replenishment, about the provision that God gives. And we also see something else here. The Lord is our shepherd. The shepherd here is, is about to provide something extraordinary. We just read last week about the one who was supposed to be the shepherd of Israel, King Herod. Right? He was supposed to be a shepherd of his people. He was no shepherd. Now we see the true shepherd. right? The true king. The true shepherd of Israel and of the world who is about to provide in an extraordinary way. Verses 41 and 42. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. Note the prevalence of the word all here. And this crowd was a mixed bag. Big crowd. 15, 20,000 people. Jews, Gentiles, Religious, irreligious, men, women, all, you know, just a mixed bag of people. But God's provision in the gospel is for all, right? It encompasses all. And the satisfaction, says they all ate and were satisfied. The satisfaction that Jesus gives is for more than our bellies. Right? Augustine said, our hearts are restless, O Lord, until we find our rest in Thee. Verse 43 tells us that they picked up 12 baskets full of leftovers. What's the message here? 12 basketfuls, 12 disciples, 12 tribes of Israel. You know, God is saying, I am more than enough. More than enough for Israel. More than enough for you. I was reading something about uh, Lake Tahoe in California this week. Um, one of the, it's incredibly deep. Uh, there, in 1875, 
these men found the deepest point of Lake Tahoe by wading down a champagne bottle, actually, and lowering it down. And they found the deepest point of the lake was 1,645 feet. And modern technology has, has confirmed that as accurate. You know, if you were to take Lake Tahoe and you were just to flip it upside down, there would be enough water in that one lake to cover the entire state of California with over 14 inches of water. There's enough water in that one lake to provide 50 gallons of drinking water per day to every American for five years. Your use of water could never exhaust its limits. Listen, God has no limits. No limits. Whatever you need, you can never exhaust God's supply. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your provision. We thank you that what you give is more than enough. Father, help us to trust you. Help us to walk by faith and not by sight. As we evaluate every aspect of our lives, Lord, help us to trust you. As we evaluate our resources, our financial resources, our, our, our spiritual gifts, our time, as we look at the challenges that are before us in our lives, help us not to think about things just on a flat human plane and just walk by sight. You call us as disciples to walk by faith. Faith in a God that we could never outgive. Faith in a God who can provide more than enough. And Lord, you have demonstrated this time and time and time again. And ultimately, you have demonstrated it through the inexpressible gift of your Son. As we just continue before the Lord right now, let me ask you something. Do you know Jesus Christ? He has gone to the cross to take your sin on himself and pay the penalty for it. He has risen from the dead. He has conquered death. He is the world's true Lord and King. And he calls you to turn to him in repentance and in faith. Is he your King? Is he your Savior? Turn to him today. So Father, speak to our hearts now, we ask, in this time of invitation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and God's speaking to you about a relationship with Christ or about being a part, seeking membership in this church family, there's a need in your life for prayer. Uh, we would love to welcome you today as you come. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in 
his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving Father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached Christ is exalted and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.